0: Sixteen. Y'all see that camel up there? It's a good looking camel. Um again, good morning. It's good to be uh up here with you again. Um again, so this this will be the last time for a little bit that I'll be up uh, here preaching like this. Um it's a unique opportunity. Uh, like you mentioned, it's a, a young church plant, uh, recently launched in Northeast D.C., um, called Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church. Okay. Um, through a, a seemingly like, random wedding invite, we became friends with a pastor, Jeremy McLean, and his wife, Tiffany, their three children. They're actually expecting uh, their fourth. Uh, Jeremy used to be an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, left when, again, Acacia River Church was planted alongside the B.D. Ayabwile. Um And I just want to share with you that this has been a long time coming. Um, uh, this week I uncovered an iPhone notes journal entry from 2013 called Revival in the Inner City. And um, I was journaling slash gospel dreaming, if that's a term. Uh, with Bree uh, about a church in an inner city community uh, where the people were on fire for the Lord. Passionate, committed, devoted, transformed. A church that preached the gospel. That made disciples that cared for orphans and widows in the midst of poverty, violence, drug abuse, and broken homes. And I was wondering, you know, what would it look like? Um, How glorious would it be? to see God bring restoration through his church in places where nobody else was willing to go. So we began praying, and taking steps of obedience. We got married, and the Lord sent us to Dover, Delaware. <laughs> it's crazy. We actually had a job um, lined up in Wilmington at Kumba Academy, and out of nowhere, the executive director of TFA calls me and says, hey, hey it's last minute. I actually have an interview for you at Central Middle School. And I was like, why not? You know, like, Bree <laughs> um, got on Nine Mark's website and we learned about Trinity. And for the past five and a half years, we've been hearing the gospel faithfully preached every single Sunday. Learning and growing. Struggling. Showing up late to community group. <laughs> Showing up late to music practice. Struggling some more, by God's grace, our roots have grown into Christ and the gospel. And we are forever grateful to God for this church because the foundations of our marriage were laid here. Foundations of our child rearing, our theology. It was you guys that helped us grow into Christ. Jeff Byler prayed for me when I almost lost my job and Brumball helped Bree and many others trying to figure out this wife-mom stuff. The Hoovers have sat with Kaya every single Sunday and loved her like their own because she is their own. We belong to this body because Christ has made us one. The list goes on and on how folks in this church have shown Christ's love to us, and we are forever grateful, and yet... We long so deeply and painfully for people like us who come from where we come from to experience this same love from Christ. The Lord is sending us to a church that's literally four minutes from where I grew up. It's 15 church members. They're renting a community space. There's no band. This is legit, no band. He just, he's, he's not a singer. He just starts singing the hymn, and everybody just sings. Um, no instruments, um, but they are confident and persuaded, just like us, that the only hope for broken, neglected families and neighborhoods is for healthy churches to be planted in them. The government can't fix it. The nonprofits don't have the resources to get the job done. But a community of believers washed by the blood of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, armed with the gospel and prayer, anchored by hope in the new heavens and the new earth, they can do some damage. Amen. Come on. So we're leaving, but we're in this together. And we're going to the same place. Amen. So pray for us right on our last Sunday, first Sunday of June. Uh, if you're ever in D.C., you'll have a couch to sleep on. But I, I would encourage you to wait a couple of months because we'll be living with my parents at first. And that couch is about as old as I am. So you do not want to stay on that couch. Let's pray. Lord, your word says, Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, that we might have hope. Lord, I beg of you this morning that you would grant instruction and endurance and encouragement from your scriptures and give us hope through ridiculous, overwhelming circumstances. Lord, you have always been faithful to your people. And nowhere greater do we see your faithfulness than in what Christ has done in dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the grave for our justification. Lord, if there be any here who have not put their trust in you, Lord, we plead with you that you will save them today. And for those of us that belong to you, Lord, give us more faith, trust, and hope that you will do what you promised, that you will come back for us one day soon, and forever you will be our God, and we will be your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, back to the camels. Excited to dive into our text this morning. Um, but first, we have to set the stage a little bit by uh, starting at the beginning. Although this story is Genesis 24, by the way, uh, completely random. Nick right? did some New Testament narratives, I'm doing an Old Testament narrative. Um, it's the story is about Isaac and Rebekah, uh, but it's directly connected to God's promise to Abraham. So uh, I want to quickly go back to Genesis 1. And a poet actually named Propaganda tells the story about as good as I've ever heard. So I want to read from him. It's up here. The greatest story ever told is hardly ever told. God. Yes, God. The maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all matter and substance. Seen and unseen. What can and can't be touched. Thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, oceans. God all of it his handiwork made uh, one of uh, his which his masterpiece made so uniquely that angels looked curiously the one thing in creation that was made with his imagery the concept so cold it's the reason I stay bold how God breathed in the man and he became a living soul formed with the intent of being infinitely intimately fond creator and creation held in eternal bond and it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. That perfect paradise was Eden, and the Bible would describe its conditions as shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom is a a peace, a balance, a a harmony between humans, a harmony with creation, harmony with God. And that something that went wrong in Genesis 3 was mankind's rebellion. Adam and Eve, they were deceived by the serpent. They ate the fruit God commanded them not to. They were not content to just be like God, made in his image. They wanted to be their own gods. And because Adam was the steward of God's creation and the representative of humankind, all humankind and creation reaps the consequences of his decision. No more shalom. Instead of harmony with each other, mankind becomes violent, self-centered, racist, and nationalistic always seeking to dominate each other. Instead of harmony with creation, the ground is cursed to produce thorns and thistles. This is the source of brokenness in our world, the frailty in our bodies. Coronaviruses, famines, uncontrollable brush fires, and the list goes on. Instead of harmony with God, the most wonderful, perfect, wise, loving, holy being ever, We were separated from him, alienated from the one who knows and loves us more than anybody else. And as a result, at our core, like Adam and Eve, as humans, we experience incredible loneliness and shame because of our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, stops basically mid-sentence while cursing man, creation and the serpent, and he says... Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, hatred, or hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promised offspring or seed of the woman, God says, will destroy the serpent. That word offspring is zerah. Everybody say zerah. Okay, right? In this promised offspring lies the hope of Shalom. That perhaps when he destroys the serpent, he will also take away everything the serpent caused. From this point, man's rebellion progresses rapidly. The question lingers. Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Is it Noah? One of Noah's sons? As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that they are not the promised offspring. In fact, they each seem to have a bit of the serpent in them. Over time, nations form, they build cities, mankind develops new technology, and they decide to use that technology to unite together against God in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses a man. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This has got to be the guy, The offspring God's going to use to restore shalom. God is saying, I'm going to fix all this mess through this God and throughout Abraham's life, we, we see a pattern over and over and over and over. One, first step, there's a threat that arises to the promise, especially the offspring. Second stage is there's a response to try and make the promise come true, to secure the offspring on their own. Usually makes things worse. And three, Yahweh intervenes. He rescues them. Finally, Abraham's faith is renewed. It happens over and over and over. Genesis 16, the threat, Abraham is old, that's a problem. If we're trying, if we're trying to get offspring, this guy's old, she can't have any babies. That's the threat. The response, they force Hagar to have a child with Abram. She's one of the first recorded sex slaves in the Bible. Intervention, so here's the third step. God visits Hagar. He takes care of her and the child. He, he takes care of Abraham by repeating his promise, making the covenant. He, he even appears to Abraham and Sarah to assure them, this time next year you'll bear a son. His name will be Isaac. Abraham's faith is renewed. Happens again in Genesis 20. The threat, there's a foreign king named Abimelech who loves to collect women for his harem. The response, I got a lie. Abraham lies and says, uh, she's my sister. It doesn't work. Intervention, God rescues her by coming to the wicked king in a dream, tells him you're a dead man, for this woman is his wife. God rescues Sarah, and by rescuing Sarah, God secures the promise and the offspring. Finally, Genesis 22, Isaac is born, the one whom God says, I will establish my covenant through. But this time, interestingly, the threat is God himself. God commands Abraham to go and offer his son as a burnt sacrifice. Abraham's response? Obedience. He makes the journey. He gathers the supplies, sets up the altar. He binds his son. He's finally learned not to try and deal with the threat on his own. Instead, he trusts God. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that even if Isaac died, that God had the power to raise him from the dead. So he picks up the knife to kill his son. Genesis 22, the Lord calls from heaven, repeats the promise. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. And your Zerah shall possess the gate of his enemies. Remember that line, that your Zerah shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The very next chapter, Sarah dies. She's buried. By this time, Abraham is at least 137 years old. He's trying to make sure things are put together before he's gathered to his people. And this brings us to our passage today. I'm actually going to have Ron come up. Uh, there are 67 verses in this story. We won't get to read all of them. Uh, but still, I want you to buckle your seats. If you have one, definitely get your Bible out. Uh, we're going to look at the chapter in four different scenes. The first scene that uh, Ron's going to be reading is the O, verses 1 through 9. Uh, scene 2, the operation, verses 10 through 28. Scene 3, the opposition. You see the O's, 29 through 61. Scene 4, the overture, verse 62 through 67. So like I said, we'll read through first scenes, give the scene comments, scene comments, and then I'll I'll summarize the last two, give you some highlights and application. So scene one is the oath. Let's get up. So read along uh, with us, Genesis 24, 1 through 9. Now
1: Abraham was old well advanced in his years. And the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Among whom I dwell. But you'll go to my country and my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. Uh, the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and he shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you then, you will be freed from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. Mm. So the servant put his hand under the thigh abraham his master and swore to him concerning the matter amen
0: y'all clap it up for ron i told him i needed an old guy to read that portion and uh he was like you know whatever <laughs> um three quick comments number one you, you see right there, there in verse one the lord had blessed him in all things there's that special key word it, it should signal to us that the promise has not been forgotten even though Abraham is old, Sarah has died, God is still blessing this man. God has kept his promise all this time, and he will continue to do so for his own name's sake. Number two, verse two says, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord. Now I got to ask, has anyone in here ever met an 140 year old man? Okay, no hands. I want you to try and imagine one. And then imagine if he asked you to put your hand under his thigh. Somehow, I just feel like that might not be pleasant. The conservative ESV commentary calls it a sign of remorse and submission. That's nonsense. The IVP commentary and GotQuestions.org goes a bit further. They say by placing his hand inside Abraham's thigh in the vicinity of his genitals, the servant ties his oath of obedience The acquisition of a wife to the perpetuation of Abraham's line. The thigh oath was considered, uh, excuse me, the thigh was considered the source of posterity in the ancient world, more properly, the loins. There are two reasons why someone would take an oath in this manner. One, Abram had been promised a seed by God, and this covenantal blessing was passed on to his son and grandson. Abraham is making his trusted servant swear on the seed of Abraham that he would find a wife for Isaac. Two, Abraham received circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Our custom, in America, we swear on the Bible. Put your hand on the Bible. The Hebrew custom was to swear on circumcision, the mark of God's covenant. So when he's telling them, you know, you must swear on my Zerah, And the covenant, you will do these these two things. He can't, there's no other swear higher than those for, 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 for Abraham. You must swear on my seed and on the covenant that you will do two things. Number one, you must not take a wife from my son from Canaan. Two, you must not take him back there. Why is this such a big deal? Short answer, idolatry. Deuteronomy 7 says that you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There isn't a third option. Right, either you're the seed of the woman, or you're the seed of the serpent. Mankind's first responsibility was to fill the world with God's image bearers. Sin made that task impossible. Because you will become like what you worship. You worship arts, entertainment, fashion, your affections, your uh, ideologies will start to mirror what you worship. So, idolatry is an existential, critical threat to the promise and the offspring. They cannot be image bearers if they bear the image of Baal. They bear the image of some other foreign god. And just while we're there, who you marry will have an unparalleled impact on the purity of your worship. So nah, he can't marry no Canaanite. And no, don't you take him back to my home. Why? Because God promised us this land. Genesis 17, Abraham knows all too well what happens when we start to compromise on God's promise. He ends up with Ishmael. So we in here, and you're going to get a wife from over there. All right, last comment as, as Bree comes up. Um, read the next passage. Last comment. I love how open-handed... Abraham holds the promise Verse 8 it says if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine This task is clearly of utmost importance, right? This is this is super important Hence the thigh oath Right, you ain't taking the thigh oath to go get some milk, right? This is a big deal And at the same time Abraham knows that Yahweh is running the show He's the one that made the promise And he is the one that will ensure the servant is successful. So scene two, this is um, verses 10 through
2: 28. The servant took ten of his master's camels, and with all kinds of his master's goods in hand, he went to Aram Naharan, to Nahor's town. At evening, the time when women went out to draw water, He made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink. And who responds, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. Mm. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, and for her wrist, two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? he asked. Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, "We have a we have plenty of straw and feed, and a place to spend the night." Then the man knelt low, worshipped the Lord, and said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my mother's relatives." Keep going. Yep. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. All
1: right,
0: clap it up for Bree, y'all. Thank you few comments here. So number one, verse 10 is incredibly misleading. It says he arose with the Mesopotamia city of Nahor. And then it goes right to verse 11. He made the camels kneel down. You read that and it sounds like they went down the street to Abraham's family. When in reality, the journey was 550 miles. ESV commentary states, along ancient routes, this journey would have taken Abraham's servant approximately 21 days to travel. So Im- imagine this, right? We, you got 10 camels loaded up with gifts and precious cargo. This trip would have required navigators, right? You see the, the desert there. There's, there's no Google Maps in the Arabian Desert, okay? This, this trip also required armed men. These trade routes were notoriously dangerous as thieves hid along the paths to rob wealthy merchants. And all this for what? A woman in this culture you could have gotten a woman for a goat even less if you were influential and powerful like Abraham and here the servant is with ten camels a team of men traveling three weeks in the desert eight to fifteen hours a day this journey was incredibly costly so why does the text skip over it I believe it because in light of the enormity of the promise No distance would have been too far. We're talking about shalom coming to all families on earth. We're talking about the restoration of the whole creation. That's how important the offspring is. I'll go 600 miles. We'll go 1,000 miles. We have to secure this offspring. He's our hope. Second comment, verse 12, the servant says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham... Right, This dude doesn't have a relationship with God himself. We know he was circumcised because he part of Abraham's household. Jewish tradition holds that his name was Eliezer of Damascus. But his name isn't revealed in the chapter. We don't know for sure, and the narrator leaves it out because we don't need to know. God's the main character here. And Yahweh, in his incredible kindness, is honoring the prayer of an outsider. He even gives the servant the sign he's looking for. Third comment, God demonstrates his sovereign power and foreknowledge in that in verse 15, before he had finished speaking, Rebekah was already coming. Who could do this but God? Our God is sovereign over the affairs of men. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Our God knows exactly when, excuse me, when the servant and their caravan will arrive, he ensures Rebecca gets there first. He makes sure she responds exactly the way the servant requested. He is literally in control of everything. And I'm stressing about the coronavirus. Really? You worried about money? You anxious about when you're going to find a uh, husband or wife? You got to leave the text for a second. Church, our God is sovereign. He knew you before you came to be. Every single one of your days is written in his book, Psalm 139, 16. Your fears ought not, should not hinder you from obedience. Whatever those fears may be. Fourth comment, Rebecca is truly a diamond in the rough. And this is God's kindness. First of all, it's amazing enough that the servant was led directly to Abraham's family. Abraham hadn't been back there since he was 75 years old. That was over 60 years ago. They could have moved, could have been displaced. So it's, it's already like, oh my goodness. I go this whole way and you lead me right to my master's family. Now, also, she's a virgin and she's beautiful. What are the chances of that? Nobody else snatched her up yet. Next one, right, the servant runs up to her, verse 17, which is highly inappropriate in the ancient world for a man in public to ask a maiden for anything. But she's not shy. She quickly gives him a drink. She offers to water the camels. She quickly empties her jar and runs back and forth, back and forth, filling the trough for all 10 camels. I looked it up. The encyclopedia says a typical camel can drink 30 gallons of water in like 15 minutes. 30 gallons, and she, he got 10 camels, and she's boom, 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 boom. Got it, got it, got it. So let me summarize. She's from the right family. She's a virgin. She's beautiful. She's not shy. She's also humble. She's submissive. She's industrious. She's hospitable and hardworking. As Andy Menio says, that's a layup. That's a layup. That's, that's easy. That, you, you're the one you marry. She's the one. The servant is blown away. Verse 21. That he gazed at her in silence. The only thing that was required for her was to, to be a maiden from this family. But all these other traits that God has built into her represent the kindness of God toward Isaac. A gift. Finally, we realize how perfectly God has prospered his journey. I love that he bows his head and worships the Lord. It's such a great reminder that we need to always turn back to praise the Lord when we see his goodness. For the sake of uh, time, I want to summarize the final two scenes. Scene three is opposition. Scene four is the overture. Uh, Conclusion. Rebecca's brother Laban makes his way outside after hearing the commotion, and he sees the ring and the bracelets. He runs to invite the servant and his men to come inside and eat. After everyone gets settled, the food is set before them. But the servant servant says, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He then recounts the entire story. He's careful to talk significantly about how prosperous Abraham has become Uh, the sign of the covenant, one of the signs, that all of this will be passed to the son. He talks about the oath Abraham made him take. Thankfully, he leaves out the thigh part. He tells them all, step by step, what happened at the well, his prayer, Rebecca's response as God's answer to his request. Then he says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, That I may turn to the right hand or to the left. This servant is not trying to play any games. I I, I imagine him standing at the table, unwilling to recline or relax until the mission mission is complete. Laban, her brother, and Bethuel, her father, respond, saying, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When he hears this, the servant bows himself to the earth before the Lord once again, giving glory to God for his success. And Then they pull out all the good stuff, jewelry of silver and gold, garments for Rebekah, costly ornaments for Laban and her mother. They all eat and drink and spend the night. The next morning, the servant says, send me away to my master. But they've had a slight change of heart. Now they're saying, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. The servant responds, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Now we have a threat arising. Right? They want to hold her back 10 days. Servant already knows they got a three-week journey ahead of them. Right? But by hanging around... They are making vulnerable the mission, right? Robbers could find them. Uh, um, back home, Abraham might die. Laban might have another change of heart. Ask for more time. We know he likes to do that. We know from his interaction with, later with Jacob. He's always seeking to use the blessing for his own benefit. So they reached an impasse. Although they agreed to send her last night, now they disagree about when the girl should go. Laban and her mother say, well, let us call the young woman and ask her. We, we ask, will you go to this man? And she responds with incredible faith like Ruth and says, I will go. We don't wanna, I don't wanna, and I don't want to like, shorten how significant it is that she would respond like that. She does not know Isaac. She's never been to where they're talking about. And without any knowledge of that man or the place, she is saying, I want to be a part of God's blessing. I, I want to I be a part of what God is doing. And she says, not a whole lot of words, but she says, I will go. Even against the wishes, clearly, of her parents and brothers. They prepare to send her away, and they bless her, saying, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your Zerah possess the gate of those who hate him. Almost word for word, the promise we read earlier in Genesis 22. They make the journey back to Canaan, and the first person to see them when they get there is Isaac. Rebecca lifts up her eyes. Isaac lifts up his eyes. She asks, Who is that man coming to meet us? The servant says, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. The servant tells him the whole story. Then in verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So God, in his faithfulness, secures the promise, secures the offspring. The covenant is passed to Jacob, the son of Isaac, who becomes Israel. He has 12 sons. The line is passed to Judah. Through 400 years of slavery, the exodus, the wilderness, the promised land, to exile, back to the promised land, back to exile. They're still waiting on the Zerah. They've learned more about him, that he'd be a king, but also a servant, that he'd come from the line of David and born in Bethlehem. But we're we're talking about thousands of, of, of years later. They don't know who the, this offspring is. And we have a woman named Mary that's given a seed by God. And the angel tells her, this, his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is unique. Although born of a woman, he is the son of God. He grows up and then he goes out preaching, telling folks that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's tempted by the serpent in the wilderness like Adam and Eve but he triumphs through trusting in God to fulfill the promise. We learn of him in in, in 1 John, says that for this reason the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the works of the serpent. And that is what Jesus does in his ministry. He's healing people. He's walking on water. He's calming storms. He is demonstrating his authority to bring about shalom for creation. He calls people to believe in him that are Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, rich, poor, lepers, and beggars. People that were previously at war with each other are now united by their shared belief and submission to him. He's bringing shalom for humans. He's forgiving sins. He's restoring shalom with God as foreshadowing of his final task. Literally, indwelt by the devil, Judas betrays him. Delivered into the hands of demonically energized men and women, Jesus is crucified. The serpent strikes his heel. But three days later, he crushes the head of the serpent by rising from the grave. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by tripping over. In him, Colossians two fifteen, 15. Galatians says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the Zerah. And he promises that one day soon, he will fully and finally usher in shalom for all those who have put their trust in him. He is the true Messiah. And if you don't know him this morning, we plead that you would put your trust in him today. That you would bow your knee to him as your king. As we conclude, a a few thoughts of application. First one, can you observe Abraham's pattern in your life? Right. um, How do you respond when threats arise to your faith? Do you respond in obedience and trust, or do you try to secure uh, the promise yourself, right, through your resources or efforts? Are you like Laban this morning? Maybe you want God for what he can bring you without actually submitting to him. I love the blessing. I love to have a, a secure and, and, and a comfortable family, but I don't want to submit to him fully my whole life. Laban wanted to keep things loose, right? Chill, sit down, and just just stay for a few more days. Do you find yourself insisting on comfort when others around you have been sent on a mission? This is a a big warning for, for us parents. Don't hold your kids back from following God. I, uh, in college, um, went through a you know, really tumultuous time in my faith. And uh, I remember going to my dad and saying, hey, dad, I, I want to drop out. And um, I want to go to this ministry down in Texas. And uh, his first response was he actually laughed in my face. Um, again, he's, he's trying to be reasonable. Like, look, man, you need to, you need to finish that. Um, he goes away and he prays. I'll never forget he came back to me. Um, he you know he had to he had to give me the payment for the application or whatever. And he said, um, he said, son, I don't want to I don't want to stand in the way of something God might be calling you to. So go for it. And that was critical in my life. The Lord used that season and, and that ministry to, to form me. And I I honor my father because he was willing to submit to the Lord, even despite his better sense. Right. You know, like you come on, Chris, just do this. You know, you'll you'll be good. But again, that's that's, that's a real warning for us as parents is we need to make sure that we are not hindering the purposes of God in, in their lives. Sometimes he might call people to do something ridiculous, like travel 550 miles for a bride. But don't allow comfort or what makes sense to take the place of prayer and obedience. Uh, third question, have you joined yourself to a Canaanite? People around you, especially a spouse, will impact the purity of your worship to God. So do whatever it takes to cling to his promises so that your heart will be loyal to Christ. Lastly, when Jesus ascended, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My prayer is that each of us would respond in faith and obedience like Rebecca, that we would say to Christ, I will go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these stories have been written down for our instruction, for our encouragement, so that we might have hope. Lord, we thank you that you have not left um, promises that are so important, like uh, bringing shalom to uh, all humankind and creation, that you, haven't, that you haven't left these promises to, to just us. We thank you that your very own Spirit is with us to guide us, to lead us. Lord, I ask that you would um, that you would give us uh, hearts of faith and obedience, so that we would respond uh, like Rebecca. When Christ tells us to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, Lord Jesus, may this church be a church that says to to, to our Lord, "I will go." Lord, we love you because you first loved us. When we desire for your um, for your purposes to uh, to to change us, to Guide us, Lord, we pray that you would do all of this, Lord, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.